This morning we're going to be in John chapter 20, and the last time we looked at the crucifixion and the burial. And I have to tell you, I for one, if that's all there was to the story, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here at church. I didn't like to go to church. I grew up in church. The reason I'm here is because I'm convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at chapter 20 this morning, which talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, it's not what you might see in Hollywood. It's a little anticlimactic. Um, you know, it took a while for the followers, both men and women, to, to pick it up, to figure it out, you know, by many convincing proofs that Jesus was resurrected. Jesus spent 40 days. Now, some grew up in the church that don't even realize that there was a 40-day gap between the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus had work to do in his glorified body, convincing the believers of his resurrection, doing things in front of them, and uh, certainly shoring them up for the coming Roman persecution. So we're going to jump in and take a look at it, starting with verse 1. It says, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple who were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came into the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Yet as they did not know the scripture, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now, we believe that the other disciple whom Jesus loved was John, who wrote this, who was probably somewhat younger than Peter. And I don't know why he had to put in there that he beat him in a race to the tomb. But it shows his humanness. He put it in there. But this is what's going on. Just a little bit of a background. Uh, taking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together. Matthew 28 says what seems to have happened first, or what I say seems to have happened first, is that there was an earthquake. The angel rolled the large stone away from the tomb, and the guards shook with fear. Matthew 27, the religious leaders, uh, after the crucifixion, say to Pilate, listen, his followers said he's going to rise again. So in order for them not to steal the body and make it look like he rose from the dead, you need to set a Roman guard. Pilate obliged, because there would be trouble for Pilate with Caesar if that got around too in his jurisdiction. You've got to look at not only the scriptural, but the historical aspect outside of the Bible. It all comes together. So a Roman guard of four is set there. The angels come, they move the stone. The guards are terrified. It, didn't take, it took a lot to get a Roman guard to be frightened, but the supernatural certainly did it. In Matthew 28, the guards come back and tell the story, and the leaders say, listen, here's money, shut up, go away, we'll make up some story, just don't talk to anybody about this. So this is what's going on here. Now, in Matthew's gospel, the angel says to the women, Jesus is risen, look into the tomb for yourself, basically, and tell the disciples 
that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. And we're going to cover that in John chapter 21. Now, there may be a little bit of confusion this morning. Now, for me teaching it, going through all the different Gospels, you know, to wrap your head around this, I want you to really understand it. I really wanted to understand it. So you take all the Gospels, you piece them together in like this puzzle, and there's a lot of back and forth. Mary Magdalene, Mary and the other women, Peter and John, the other disciples, Thomas isn't there. Later, Jesus appears to all of them together. So what you're going to have is this fluidity. The situation is fluid until all the disciples are on the same sheet of music and convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I want to point out Mary Magdalene. A lot has been said about her in writings and in history and people writing books. But she seems to be the one that was definitely at the cross. She was one of the followers of Christ, and she was there at the tomb. What do we know about Mary? Well, the only thing the Bible says, aside from that she was a follower of Christ, is that she had seven demons cast out of her. She was possessed. How did she get them? What was she into? What was her lifestyle? Some have speculated, but it's just speculation. Was she involved in the occult? Either way, Jesus cast seven demons out of this woman. And you know, she had so much love and appreciation for Jesus Christ that some erroneously speculate it was romantic. This was her God. This was the person who saved her. You know, any of the, the characters, any of these biblical figures who are demon-possessed abuse themselves. That's what Satan does. He wants to destroy us because we are the object of God's affection. Mary was freed from that. She loved him. She appreciated them. We see that with the women at the cross and the women at the tomb. Do we appreciate the Lord? Do we realize that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that without the Lord, we couldn't get to heaven either? Some are just part of the church culture. I don't see it like that. I was advised of a recent uh, talk that Beth Moore gave, and she said some of the nastiest, meanest people are Christians who don't think that they have much to be forgiven for. That Jesus didn't have to do a whole lot. They haven't received that grace, so they don't know how to give grace to others. Let's not be like that. I will tell you, 20 years ago, the Lord saved me, and I am forever grateful to him. I will serve him till the day I die. And if I stop doing it, I hope some of you come up to me and rebuke me for it and remind me what I've been saved from. I appreciate the grace that he has shown me. I think all of us at this moment can really think about our lives and say, I'm not perfect. And these sins barred me from entrance into heaven. However, Jesus paid the price for my sin. And even as a Christian, when I continue to sin, the Lord paid for those sins as well. I love Mary Magdalene. She's one of the people I want to meet when I get to heaven. This girl's got heart, you know. She understood. Verses 4 through 10, there's a situation with John and Peter now at the tomb. Remember, Jesus was left in the tomb wrapped in these grave cloths. His head, his body, bodies in, in that area when they died. Once you die, you know, the hot sun, it starts to decay. There's bacteria, it starts to smell. So what do they do? They take the spices, they take the herbs, in addition to the wrappings, they adorn the body with these uh, spices and herbs. 
what happened is, and the, the Greek word that's used here is a transliterated word, for the, the uh, handkerchief or the headpiece is called a sudarium. And basically they see the cloth sitting there, probably with the spices still on them, no body, and the head part, the sudarium, wrapped as if uh, entuliso, right, sort of entwined, that Greek word, uh, sitting all by itself, cocooned. And they probably thought to themselves, hmm, what does this all mean? Now, it doesn't come out in the English, but in the Greek, in verse 5, 6, and 8, says they saw, they saw, they see. However, three different words in the Greek, starting from mere sight, blepo, I see it, to perception with intelligent comprehension. Not only they're seeing it, but their mind is now working, and they're taking in all these facts. If they thought it was the work of a grave robber or a thief, they had to say, everything is orderly and undamaged. How could this be? As if Jesus passed through these cloths. Well, we'd really like to see him in person and touch him, but their minds are starting to work. And this is how faith works. Later on, Jesus or the disciples are all in a room, and we're going to cover that, and Jesus just pops in the middle of them. He passes through walls, and we'll, we'll cover that as well. Faith, it grows like a plant. Some ask me, how are you so sure? I wish I could have faith like you have. And I say, well, 20 years ago, I didn't have this faith. It took a while. Don't look at somebody who's been a believer for a while and say, I could never be like that. Not true. It has to start somewhere. It usually starts with a little bit of evidence, but it also has to be a major work of God, and God grows that faith like a beautiful plant, and then you see it start to blossom, and you see the fruit of that faith in a person's life. Verse 9, it says, For as yet they did not know the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Wait a minute. Jesus told them many times, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. How could they not know the Scripture? Well, there's knowing the Scripture and then there's knowing the Scripture. There's a real greater understanding of the Scripture. Many Christians know Scripture. They can even quote the Bible and put it on uh, their Facebook page or put it on books and whatever the case may be. But it's quite another story to know the Scripture. And you guys know what I mean if you've been a believer for a while. When you start to go through persecution and hardships, now you start to know that Scripture. I'll give you an example. Uh, Psalm 23 you know, how many times is it read at funerals? How many times is it explained at funerals? No, probably not that often. Well, it's a nice psalm. My son even has it memorized. He's got a great head for memory. And there's this one part in Psalm 23 that he says, you've prepared a table for me in the midst of my enemies. Oh, that's really nice. That's really sweet. Until you're actually surrounded by enemies in your life. Could be a family situation. Could be something at work. It could be something in the community. Now you, you have to walk and live through that scripture. Okay, Lord, take me through this one. Now I'm starting to know this scripture because I'm living it. And it, heck, check out the dude who's sitting at the table and eating. And all his enemies are surrounding him. You get heartburn doing that, man. Because you're, you're like looking around and you're a little bit paranoid. God says you can eat and you can relax. I'll take care of the enemies. Right? So the disciples, their life now became an object lesson. The scripture now started to come to life to them. Verse 11. 
But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Remember, he's in his glorified form. He's resurrected. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. As you can see, it took a little while for the resurrections to sink in among Jesus' closest followers. Now, if you're looking to deceive the masses with a new religion, this isn't the way to do it. Better to, to uh, consult a Hollywood director and put a little pizzazz into it. Because the biblical characters aren't cooperating. Okay? So if you're looking to deceive the masses, as some think, because they haven't read the Bible, they've just heard stories about the Bible, look again. This is real life. These are real people. Mary, thinking that Jesus was the gardener or the caretaker of the grounds, says, where did you put him? I'll carry him back. I don't know what, what she looked like, but her heart and her love for Jesus overshadowed her physical limitations. You just point out where he is, thinking he's dead. I'll drag him, I'll throw him over my shoulder, I'll do a fireman carry, whatever I have to do, weeping all the way. I'm going to give my Lord a proper burial. Mary had heart. And even in what she thought was Jesus' death, she wanted him to be respected. She was loyal to him. Are we that loyal to the Lord in our lifestyles? We can certainly make the application. Does the church have the same love, appreciation, and heart for Jesus Christ that the early followers did? Or are we sold out for the world? Again, it comes back to the appreciation that we have for him in the grace he's shown to us that he died for our sins and gave us entrance into heaven. Now, you can look at verse 12. There's the two angels where he lay, one at the head, one at the feet. You take all the scripture together. Some could almost see the cherubim on the mercy seat, right? Others might see Isaiah 6 with the seraphim and the Lord in between. You know, if you've read the Bible for some time, you might see those images. Either way, the women are not moved by the angels. See, when you've tasted of the goodness of Jesus Christ, not even angels will satisfy you. When you get a taste and you become full from what Jesus has done in your life, nothing can compare to the risen Christ. Keep that in mind. Even today, you know, listen, it's cool to have knickknacks and pictures and you know, a lot of people like angels. They're amazing creatures. When we went through Resur uh, Revelation, it was impressive. But Jesus supersedes that. No competition. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is a teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Jesus said, Mary, now, she didn't physically recognize him with her eyes. And maybe part of it was she was looking for a dead body. 
And you know, you know what I, I love about John's gospel? John was a fisherman. Didn't we cover last Sunday all the medical terms that John experienced? He says, well, this is what I saw. Well, we can go into our medical manuals and say, oh, yeah, this is what this means. Well, John had no idea about this stuff. Right? Here, we're looking at situations where people are in shock. You know, tragedy victims, they're in shock from this, their hero has been killed. And then we look at the behaviors of somebody who acts when they're in shock. This is a manual, a psychology manual as well. Very impressive. So, she did not recognize him sight-wise, but she did recognize him audibly. And I liken this to when you receive a phone call. Right? <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking, but you're all thinking the same thing. Um, when the phone rings, I pick up the phone. People don't usually announce who they are if they're close to me. They just say my name or how they would say my name. If I pick up the phone and a woman says, Hi, baby. I know that's my mother. <laughs> At 45, I'm still her baby. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes I'll pick up the phone and I hear, Joey! I know who it is. Some of you young people pick up the phone and you hear, What's up? Whatever the greeting is, you recognize that greeting. She recognized there was a certain way he said her name. Jesus, it's you. So her eyes were playing tricks on her, but her ears we're very clear about the recognition of his voice. It goes better than that. It goes deeper than that. Check this out. If you want to turn to John 10:3, only two verses. John 10:3 and 4. It says, "To him, or the shepherd, the doorkeeper opens." And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now, when I taught this, I studied shepherding, you know, with real sheep. <laughs> Those kind of sheep, the fuzzy white, you know, sheep. And it's amazing that even in the Middle East today, some of the shepherds do it the old-fashioned way. They don't use the dogs. They don't use modern technology. But they call constantly. And the sheep, as dumb animals as they are, they understand the voice of the shepherd where there's a community and there's a sheepfold and they have this gate and all these sheep, these fuzzy white sheep, fit in there. And in the morning, all the shepherds, it could be three of them, they line up and they open the doors and they all have their specific call. And as dumb as these animals are, when they come out, they start to make a file in front of the shepherd based on his, his voice. I love that Jesus would take simple things that the simplest among us could look at and say, oh yeah, and he makes a parable out of it and it clicks, it makes sense. The sheep hear his voice and the question is, do we hear his voice? Because that's very important. And as we grow in Christ, the voice becomes clearer. It's unmistakable. It's unmistakable. God has a specific way that he speaks to every one of us. And I love to hear stories from believers about your intimate relationship with your Lord and Savior. Wow, this is how he speaks to me. This is how he speaks to you. Especially when he comforts us and he directs us to do his will. Now, if you're a new believer, give it time. You'll hear a lot of voices. You'll hear your own thoughts. 
You may hear the voice of the enemy disguising himself as the good shepherd. He's the false shepherd. He's the wolf. Okay? But when you walk with the Lord long enough, that voice becomes more distinctive. It's unmistakable. It's unmistakable. Now, for those that, um, you know, there's a, a fringe in Christianity where, uh, I don't know, I guess it's to make a person look more spiritual. They're always saying, God told me this, God told me that, God told me this. And the things that they say are not even scriptural. God would not go against his own word. That's a bizarre fringe of, of the faith. It's not real. God would never go against anything that he's already established in his word. Let's keep that in mind. Verse 17. She clings to him. Now, I have to explain this because you almost look like, well, she wasn't allowed to touch him. I don't understand. Like when I first read this, I kind of had that same idea. If you look at the Greek word, it means to attach oneself to. I mean, she was like a gecko with them suction cups, and she, Mary, you're cutting off my airway. You know, I don't think that was the case, but she was stuck to him. She let him go once. She wasn't letting him go again. Oh, my Lord and my Savior, I'm not letting you go. Mary, I could just picture him saying it with a smile. Mary, don't cling to me. I haven't yet ascended to my father. Let's look at two reasons why he might have said this, probably both of them. Number one, he had work to do. He had 40 days. There was a prophetic timetable that he had to work in. He had work to do on the earth. Post-resurrection, pre-ascension. Actually, in Luke 24, he spends some time with two key disciples on the road to Emmaus. So Jesus, he just goes from place to place, shoring up those, those followers. Two, Mary had work to do. He gave Mary specific instructions. Tell the disciples. Tell them what you saw. Tell them it's me. I've risen. Come, I'm going to meet them. Um, I'm going to see them over in in Galilee. Verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. Now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. But if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. That's where he gets the, uh, the term, the moniker, Doubting Thomas. So Jesus finds the disciples assembled secretly with locked doors. Again, let's look at their thought processes. Let's put our, the, ourselves in their shoes. They just killed their hero, the one who did miracles, the one who raised from the dead, they saw him die a cruel and gruesome death. And they probably figured, let's meet in secret because they're coming after us next. They were probably terrified and paranoid. Jesus says what? The first thing he says to them is peace. Peace. Now we hear peace. And Jesus said this in John's gospel before. I give you peace, not as the world gives you. It's a different kind of peace. 
the world is just happy when there's maybe not some major wars or some political situations, and they look at that as peace. Well, God's peace is different. God can give you peace throughout all that stuff. Like I said, we've seen some horrible events happening in our country. I submit to you that America, the face of America, is changing. That some of the stuff, we're going to see more of it. I hate to say it. But we can still have peace in the midst of those storms. Satan wants to terrorize. He wants to put you in fear. He wants to make you afraid every day. He wants to keep you in the house. Satan is a terrorist. He's a lot of things. He's a very brilliant general, a war general, but he's also a terrorist. And this is his design. And Jesus says, the world is going to give you trials, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Here, here's my peace. Well, Jesus, we want things to be nice in America. Mm, It's not scriptural. We want things to be wonderful in the American church. Mm, Not scriptural. But I will give you peace in the midst of those storms. It's up to you if you choose to accept that peace or not. Love that about him. Jesus goes above and beyond. He meets them where they're at. They're in survival mode, these disciples. It's going to take a little while for them to warm up to not being in this paranoid state anymore. But he's a gentle God. He meets the disciples where they're at. He doesn't start reading them the riot act. What's the matter with you guys? How many times did I tell you he's going to rise from the dead? What what are you doing in here? What's with the doors locked? Right? He doesn't do that. He loves them. And I have to tell you this, that when people come into this church, you don't know the Lord. Well, you don't understand my position. Well, I've got addiction issues. Well, I've got financial issues. Well, I'm in trouble with the law. Jesus will meet you where you're at. Well, I have to clean up my life first before I come. This sounds really great. I'm looking around at all these people. They're all smiling. They sing. They hold their hands up when they worship. This isn't... My wife and I did that when we first went to a Calvary. We looked around. Everybody had their hands up. They were all smiling. And we thought, we don't belong here. (laughs) We don't belong here. These people are great and we're not. And I have to tell you that if we let that be the prevailing thought process, we never would have become become Christians. Jesus will meet you where you're at. I don't care what your situation, it's not something he hasn't heard before. As a matter of fact, he died for the situation that you're involved in right now. Verse 22. It says that he said to them, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't believe that Jesus... The Holy Spirit was trapped in his lungs and he went, and the Holy Spirit came out. Um, As a matter of fact, in the original Greek, it says literally, he breathed on and then said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Bible translators added them, it's italicized, to try to make it make grammatical sense to them. However, there's a contextual issue. The things that he was speaking to them about, they needed the Holy Spirit. This was a relatively new concept to them. Even though they were, going to be, they were being sealed with the Holy Spirit, they needed the Holy Spirit. It's, it's symbolic in some respects. It's instructional in other res- respects. And it was also um, to have them to look forward to this symbolic or this future endowment in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them. All right? So there's a, there's a lot going on here. Verse 23. Some have trouble with this, so I'm going to explain it. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
Now, in Luke 24, now this is where we've got to put all the Gospels together. In Luke 24, in the same conversation, Jesus says, repentance and remission of sins must be preached. In Matthew 28, he says, baptize and disciple the nation. So putting it all together, the retention, right, retention or the forgiveness of sins is only accomplished through giving the gospel and whether they receive the gospel or not. Um, according to Greek scholars, doctors Manti and Woost, according to the text and looking at the original Greek, the actions of the disciples via the gospel only confirmed what's being done in heaven. In other words, when the gospel is given, the gospel provides forgiveness of sins, but you've got to receive that gift that Jesus paid for you uh, on the cross. Um, that's why it's so important to share our faith. Now, it, it's not forced, it's not obnoxious, it's conversational. It's in a loving manner. If somebody doesn't want to receive it, then they don't receive it. If they do, then give them more information. But this is the way that humankind, this is the way that God made for our sins to be paid for so that we can stand in God's presence. That's his way. Right? We broke the rules. He fixed what we did wrong. But this is the only way. So, unfortunately, some men have taken this, and men love to do this. It's an authority trip. Well, I'm the only one who can forgive your sins. No, that's not what he's saying there. Not what he's saying. It's done through the giving of the gospel. Now, Luke 20, 24, I want to turn to Luke 24, uh, just a few verses here, starting with verse 36. In the same conversation, Jesus says, or it says, Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. So they're, they're, these guys are just not in a good state psychologically. And then Jesus comes and you know, he just pops and shows up and you know, they're kind of a little freaked out about it. Verse 38, And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them, he might have been wearing a garment that covered it, and then he draws back the sleeves, he lifts up whatever he's wearing, and they see the wounds made from the cross. Probably holes. He holds his hands up, and you can see daylight through the center of that wrist where they cr crush the, uh, car the uh, metacarpals. So he says to them, but, it says, but while they still did not believe... While well, they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he ate it in their presence. <laughs> it's like, I see him chewing. Stuff's disappearing, you know? It must have been fascinating for them to watch this. Now, the Gnostics and the Jehovah Witnesses teach some odd things about the risen Christ that are just not true, that he didn't have a physical body. Well, here he says it out of his own mouth. Actually, I was asked, um, I was asked, Pastor Joe, do you think that when we have our new resurrected bodies that we'll be able to eat because I really enjoy eating? <laughs> and I said, absolutely. 
I take the marriage supper of the Lamb literally. We'll already be transformed by then. And there's going to be a great feast that the Lord will invite us to. How exciting. Now, how does this work? How do we have, you know, we'll be similar to him. Of course, we won't be gods. That's ridiculous. But we will have bodies that can traverse the next dimension, the one that's the eternal dimension. I believe that to go from one geographical location to the other, it'll just be like that. If we will it, it happens. Right? This is what's, and he gave us a little taste of that in this. So he has bones. He, has, uh, he just decided to take the form of, of, of a man, a body. This is his resurrected body, and he's able to eat. And they probably, they're, all their jaws dropped while they watched this going on. But again, I take the marriage supper of the Lamb literally in Revelation. Verse 26, And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas now finally gets to handle Jesus. And he affirms the deity of Christ. As a matter of fact, he says in the Greek, Hakoriasmu kai hatheasmu. If you know Greek, the kai was an equal sign. My Lord and my my God, they were, he was talking about the same person. Again, those that don't believe in the deity of Christ will say, he said, my Lord, and looked up and said, my God. Absurd. Not according to Greek grammar. He could have said it a different way. So he's affirming the deity of Christ. And I wonder sometimes if this was a little bit of a mild rebuke to Thomas, in a sense that I really have to go through all this. You're the last holdout for, for you to believe. But I'm going to read something in Fox's Book of Martyrs about the disciple Thomas that's going to blow your doors off. It has a really nice ending to it. This is a blessing to us, to Christians in 2013. He said, blessed are... Thomas, you saw. I showed you. You you saw the hole in the side. You saw the hands, the the ankles. Uh, But blessed are those who will come to faith without seeing, but they will believe anyway. Through different evidence, through a work of the Holy Spirit, through an act of their will, all being the perfect storm, the perfect nexus to believing in what I've done and my resurrection. So this is a blessing to us. Now, faith is interesting because faith has three major parts to it. You trust, you have confidence, you have reliance in. I submit to you today every time, and I've watched this for three plus years in this building, that nobody has come into this place and looked underneath the seats. None of you have done that. I've watched. You have faith that when you sit down on that pew, you're not going to fall. Never. Three, three plus years, nobody. Never seen it. And I've got to tell you, for those of you in the balcony, you really have faith. <laughs> I haven't seen anybody measuring the columns, doing a weight test to see if it's just going to collapse one day. So we exercise faith every single day of our life. When we take a plug and put it in our receptacle in our wall for our blow dryers or our toasters, we exercise faith. We expect when we hit the on button that the thing goes on right? Electricity, you can't see it, but you know it's there because of the results of it. So it is with the Lord and the Holy Spirit, right? So we exercise faith on a regular basis. And we, we, we might not realize, oh, Pastor Joe, gee, I, I never looked at it that way. Well, look at it that way. 
Thomas. A little word on Thomas in isolation. Thomas, for those of you in mathematics, was in a phase shift out of sync with the rest of the disciples. They all were getting it, and Thomas was that last holdout. It took eight more days for him to actually have the joy that the rest of the disciples had about the risen Christ. What was Thomas doing? What was so important that he couldn't be with his brothers and sisters? I don't know. I mean, this had to be the... Even the, the guys heading to Emmaus who were talking to Jesus, not realizing who he was. Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Do you know all the things that happened in the last few days? Thomas isolated himself, and he missed out on that joy and happiness. Proverbs 18.1 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. I just want to encourage anybody who's here this morning or listening on the radio or the CD or the website that I want to encourage you to get and assemble with the brethren, with the brothers and sisters. Don't isolate yourself. That's, see, Satan does that. Satan finds the flock of sheep and he finds the one that he thinks is sickly or away from the pack and that's when he attacks. You ever see these nature shows with the gazelles and the impalas and the, all these different deer-looking kind of creatures? The lion waits for one to straggle because altogether they might be able to take on the lion. And this is what Satan does too. He finds the straggler. And he, he puts thoughts in their heads and he tells them things. And you don't belong there anyway. They're all perfect. You're, you're a loser. You, I know what you did Saturday night. And I, I'm going to tell somebody. I'll make sure somebody finds. Don't listen to him. You know, there is something about the body of Christ being together. It's important. And that's why Satan always picks people off. That's what he does. Verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And there's a parallel to 1 John 5. This is what's going on. Due to their emotional trauma, it took a while for the disciples for the res resurrection to set in, even though they had seen proof. Some say, well, prove it to me that God, you can prove it. And they'll still say, no, I don't want to believe. So some say, well, you've got to prove it to me. And then others, they get proven to them. And then they say, well, just, I'm just not ready. So the disciples, what's really neat is for those of you who have never read this, they're just like you and I. They're people. They have weaknesses. They have strengths. They have good times. They have bad times. They don't, they don't always behave appropriately when under stress. And that's the blessing to every one of us here, that God looks at us all equally. And he can use every single person in this, in this room, and he wants to. He wants to. However, when it did sink in, the disciples' lives were fundamentally changed forever. I want to read to you in Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is the chronicles of pretty much all the martyrs from the beginning, and even in different time periods. This blows me away. Speaking about doubting Thomas, let's read the rest of the story. Thomas traveled north and east from Israel, passing through Babylon and Persia, and making impact for the gospel as far as the southern regions of India, long distance before airplanes. Long-standing traditions about his journeys far beyond the boundaries of Roman control remain even today. Many of the places and kings associated with Thomas that were thought to be merely legendary have been confirmed by independent historical and archaeological studies. Undeniably, 
Developed civilizations lay beyond the horizon to the east, and Jesus' words, go to the ends of the earth, must have constantly echoed in the apostles' minds. The trade routes he would have used have existed for thousands of years. Portuguese mariners and explorers in the 16th century reported evidence of St. Thomas's ministry, including a sizable band of believers known as the St. Thomas Christians. The fact that Thomas has been so uniquely connected with India among the apostles makes a strong case for his ministry there. Last paragraph. Various versions of Thomas' martyrdom agree that he ran afoul of the Hindu priests who envied his successes and rejected his message. Thomas was speared to death. The location of his tomb can still be visited in Mylapore, Malayapur, India. You know what, what really strikes me about that? Thomas now had his own wounds. He had his own badge of honor. As he was being speared to death, it's amazing when you read this, witnesses who have seen Christians killed for their faith, singing, praising, and the persecutors are so angry, and they just keep doing whatever they're doing, and it has no negative effect on them. So he wanted to see the holes that Jesus had. After this, he had his own holes. Isn't that amazing? Fundamentally changed the life of the Apostle Thomas. My encouragement to you this morning is, and I spoke about this on Resurrection Sunday, is the resurrected life. Yes, when we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. It's already given to us. It's a done deal. However, we can also have a resurrected present life here. We can make a difference in this world. I mean, we've seen enough of the evil in this world. Why don't we try to counteract that? And only through the power of God and the Holy Spirit can we be successful. How many people did Thomas affect in India, going all the way eastward across that swath of land? How many people can we affect, even if it's just one person? Could be the next preacher, the next pastor, the next missionary, the next person who works miracles. We don't know, only God knows. So brothers and sisters, I would encourage us all that we would live that resurrected life, that we would be praying to ask God to use us to show us our spiritual gifts and to give him glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. It's beautiful. Lord, we thank you. Although it doesn't need to happen, there are so many secular sources that support your word, whether historically or aftermath or written years prior or years post. But Lord, it starts with believing in you. Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you,